I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. We're here with part two with Grant Cazada. I don't think you see that a lot in uh, individuals and, and in employers, um, but for me, that's who I want to be and that's who I choose to be. So, and once again, it comes down to that's, it's just a daily choice. You know, in the military, you have, you have to choose daily to, to live and it, at that best level. This is another episode of Innovation and Leadership where we interview all kinds of high achievers from world-class musicians to CEOs, authors, pro athletes. Try to find the common elements of success no matter what you're working on. Also, we've got a new book coming out soon. If you want to get an advanced copy for free, please email me, jess at innovationandleadership.com and just tell me in the email. Again, jess, J-E-S-S, at innovationandleadership.com. And now onto the episode. Grant is a from the Special Operations Command world. He was a sniper in the Rangers, and now he's a National Guard guy doing sniper competitions. He's a business owner, owns uh, John Hancock Barbers Barbershop. And uh, Grant, when we were t- finishing off part one, um, I was really thinking uh, you were given advice about helping people grow and become better versions of themselves, and and helping staff develop. And I thought you were doing a great job of describing me <laughs> because for me, it's so easy to think, ah, I should just fire him. Man, my life would be easy. Man, you know, they should know this or they should know that. And it's easy for me to feel like a victim of, of their incompetent choices or something when I'm being all emotional about a staff member. Sure. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I was kind of excited to have you on the show is, you know, as we've talked in in times past and you've taught even before the show and you're talking about how you're not much of a yeller, you know, uh, I think, you know, the way that the media portrays, you know, you guys from special operations, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of assumptions that it must be like those, those movies where the Marine drill sergeant's just screaming in somebody's face about everything. And, you know, you, nobody treats you like a real human. You're just some useless number to be sent off to war kind of thing. Um, where my experience is, is it's, it's very different. Uh, I, I find like a level of thoughtfulness that, um, from, from folks from your community and from you specifically of this idea of, you know, there's probably not much that can't be handled through conversation. Can you talk about, uh, using words to help people take higher levels of personal responsibility? Yeah. So, um, that's a good one. So, you know, I, I feel like, uh, 
all of us just due to simply how we were raised and, and the environments that we grew up in. Um, you know, some of us are going to have a better approach or the tools needed to facilitate um, how we experience this life that we're living. And uh, I feel pretty blessed with how how I was raised and the tools I had. And, and um, you know, my my stepfather is a uh, retired 10th Special Forces group, and then he was a deputy here in town. And my mom's a psychologist. And, and um, you know, my dad is a great guy down in California and, like, always just great – great with being able to express and explain like just what he's thinking. And so with all these important people in my life, um, and those are the ones who kind of shit grew me from a young age. Uh, I'm realizing the older I get, how important it is to have a solid base. And so you start getting around other people in this world and you start realizing like, okay, not everybody had the, um, the same tools that I had growing up and the ability to, uh, to kind of have people listen to them and, and coach them along on how to express themselves in certain avenues. And so after going into the military and experiencing that whole thing, which was great, um, and feeling like just that idea of being a part of a team, part of something bigger than yourself, having that sense of duty and uh, everything that the, the military entails and, and what that whole experience is like, when I got out, and open up my barber shops. It was like, how, how do I re-implement that idea into <clears throat> my business model and invest in people's lives um, by just positive words of affirmation or by um, speaking truths into their lives and not allowing them to sell themselves short. But a lot of that just comes down to, as a business owner, like I, I continually have to to actively be patient with my employees on a day-to-day -day basis and it is it's always so much easier to just um yell or uh denigrate or fire somebody or write somebody's problems off as they're not mine they're theirs and i'm they're just they work for me and so i don't really care what's going on but i believe that you know as an employer um if once you take somebody on and they're kind of underneath your wing, like as a leader and as an employer, my, my job is to coach them and help them in all aspects of their life that they want to allow me to. So I don't overstep the boundaries and input, um, information or, or, you know, my opinions on how they should live. But if the subject gets broached and, uh, we start conversing in certain manners, which it's happened with probably all of my employees, uh, then I'm going to be pretty honest with them and, and gladly kind of pick up where they left off and, and, you know, see if, if there's anything I can help them out with. So that's, I don't think you see that a lot in, uh, individuals and, and in employers. Um, but for me, that's who I want to be and that's who I choose to be. So, and once again, it comes down to that's, it's just a daily choice, you know, in the military, you have, you have to choose daily to, to live and it, at that best level, you know, you're surrounding yourself with the best. So you have to be the best and that's a choice daily. So now yeah. that I'm a civilian again, it's like, I'm choosing daily to be, be better. You know, um, I think another thing too, is like, I think for people who, who look at you, you know, your big biceps tattoos, <laughs> they know you're like, 
getting ready for the international sniper competition, right? Like, uh, I think it's probably pretty powerful that you're setting the example. I mean, I remember when you and I were talking about some of the struggles with opening a second location. So, you know, by default, this has to become a system. You can't just micromanage, right? Yeah. And, and that you had to kind of come back to everybody in a place of humility of, hey, well, maybe you can talk about this. It was a little bit of a free-for-all and uh, you realized that maybe you were letting them down by not putting as much structure and SOPs as you could have. Do you want to talk about setting the example of coming to everybody from that place of humility and letting them know what you're going to do different, kind of that ultimate responsibility kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So, um, so right now I have two shops and I work at both locations two days a week. So there's one of the shops is open seven days a week. So I don't know what's going on there five days a week. And then, uh, the other shop is open five days a week and I work there two days a week. So once again, there's three days I can't really count for what's going on there. So, um, right before I opened the second shop, I just had a meeting with everybody and it was kind of, uh, explaining what needs to be done to make these shops run efficiently, the expectations of, um, you know, just quality control. And I kind of left it more of hands-off approach. So I simply took a step back and, uh, explained everything that needed to be done for these shops to run. And then I let them kind of determine who is going to do what knowing full well that this is not going to work. But in today's society, so many of us want to live lives of autonomy and we want to have the freedom to choose and do what we want to do. So sometimes you can't take a military approach and just dictate to everybody what they're going to do. You have to allow them to have that autonomous thinking and give them the freedom to to problem solve on their own now of course not everybody is going to uh do a smash bang job of that so i kind of took a step back for about two months and let the shops run themselves without kind of putting putting very minimal effort into what's going on you know like if i saw a problem it was like hey can one of you guys fix it this thing or that thing and the shops ran fine but at the end of two months you know, I had a shop, I, I took everybody out to lunch one-on-one -on -one and kind of uh, asked for three sustains and three improves and then kind of how they felt everything was going at the And, and so shop. for people who aren't as familiar with that military language, can you, can you talk about this, this idea of wh wh when you say three sustains? Can so you... three sustains, like I simply would ask, you know, each employee, what are sustainments that what is going good at the shop that doesn't necessarily need to change. So for them, it might be, I come into work at nine o'clock and I leave at seven and that's a sustain for me. Okay. That's great. You know, or the marketing that everything you're doing in marketing for the shop, um, all the money that's going out on different advertisements and stuff like that, that's a sustainment. Uh, so it, it was just simply asking everybody, what do you think is, give me three sustains on whether it's me doing a good job, you doing a good job, other people at the shop, the shop in general. And then after that, it was give me three improves. Like how can we get better as a team? How can I get better as the employer? How can you get better? Um, and so after meeting with everybody, just compiling the data, uh, then we had like a, a big shop meeting to where we sat down and I pretty much, um, that was my time to pretty much vent a little bit to everybody. So allow everybody to know like, Hey, look, this is the overall goal of, of where I see the shops going. And you guys all see that there was stuff that needed to be fixed. 
I took a hands-off approach and gave them enough rope to kind of hang themselves. And you, they had the freedom to, to fix things where it needed to be, but you know, certain things fell through the crack, which is expected. So now moving on forward, we're going to have pretty much SOP set in place to run everything more efficiently. And really it will take a lot of stress off of everybody because they can, they, they have the ability to just essentially look through a book and see exactly how stuff needs to run. So, um, which is, you know, it's very helpful. I, any major corporation is going to be set up and structured the exact same way. Um, the military is set up and structured the exact same way. So uh, I don't think there's any reason not to have that in small businesses. Well, you um, look at you look at books like the E Myth, right? The uh-huh. entrepreneurial myth, and it's it's exactly this use case of you look at um, ninety five percent of independent restaurants go out of business, and ninety five percent of franchise restaurants stay in business. Yep. It's obviously serving food has nothing to do with whether you're going to go out of business or not. Right. Right. But like having, having a repeatable system is incredibly valuable to success. But let me ask you this, uh, in your opinion that, you know, there's a lot of bosses that maybe would have got emotional about it and would have just called everybody together that wouldn't have taken the time to do a one-on-one with every single person and wouldn't have given everybody the time to start off with, what do you feel like is working and, and maybe have that kind of let the, the space, like have that conversation feel safe before they go, you know, into the, what, what needs improvement in your case, what do you feel like the value was having taken that extra time to do the one-on-ones and to let them start with the stuff that they think is working? Uh, I think the biggest value is allowing them to understand and know that I actually value them as an employee. So I don't see them as a cog in the wheel, but like, I value their friendship. I value them as an employee. I understand that <clears throat> the business model itself can't work without them. And without them simply means because anybody can, people are going to come and go. But while they're there, you know, it, they help run the business efficiently. And um, I'm able to set things in place and continue to drive more business to them to where they can maintain you know, a very busy schedule and obviously make good money for the location where we're at, you know? So, well, and my um, guess, and I'm, I'm just going to toss this out there, but my, my guess is that by time you'd done that with everyone, when you got them together and you let them know what improvements you were interested in happening, that they're a lot more likely to listen when you listen to them first. That's just my, my guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, by simply putting them first, um, you know, as, as an employer, my, by putting them first, I know that I will be heard eventually because they work for me. So if they're going to maintain working for me, then of course, whatever I need to say is going to come out eventually. But for them, um, they need to understand that I value them and appreciate them. And that I'm actually listening to them and, and I'm willing to forgo telling them immediately what I need done in order to have them feel respected and and a little bit of dignity, which goes so much further than just running everything like it was the military and just screaming at them or kind of steamrolling them and and making them feel like they're nothing but a cog in the wheel. So when you you think of like, whether it's long-term retention or the way they treat your customers when you're not around, what do you think that setting the example of respecting them, what benefits do you see for, for John Hancock 
that they feel like they're getting that level of respect from their boss? So, you know, a lot of the, the clients that we have in the shop, there's a lot of doctors and lawyers and business, other business owners and stuff like that in the area that come through. So we're, we're trying to cater to a broad demographic. And from the very beginning, every one of them knows like, Hey, this is the goal guys. If we can cater to a broad demographic, if we can dress professionally, carry ourselves professionally, like kind of <clears throat> induce a lot of that same, um, expectation that the military had on me and by me expecting that of them, uh, it will go a long way and it will actually help them, uh, become more professional and have the appearance of being more professional. And then therefore, uh, it will drive more business to them because, you know, essentially that will lead them to actually being more professional. So, uh, they, you know, I, I see that they realize that and they understand that. Um, and you know, yeah, my, my guess is they're going to go the extra mile. When they feel respected by you, then they're going to have more respect for the business and and want to go that extra mile for the customer, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I have um, – I mean, it's a pretty broad age range of employees. I think my youngest is 23 all the way up to 50, and I'm 33. So I have a couple guys, I think three or four guys that are older than me and three or four that are younger than me. So, um, it's simply just understanding how to, how to manage and, and converse with people and actually pull alongside of them and, and, uh, kind of bring them into the fold, make them feel like they're part of the team instead of always looking at them as, or, or having them feel like they're being looked at as, as they're not part of the team, you know, or, or, um, they're, I just keep going back to the cog in the wheel, but I, I believe that especially nowadays, so many Americans are so sick and tired of kind of that corporate mentality of, of feeling like I'm just this massive cog in this machine and I don't have the autonomy that I want, I want, and I can't do yeah, what I want. Who doesn't want to feel special, right? You know, exactly. like nobody wants to feel like I'm just the same as everybody else. They, I'm, I'm this like faceless number to be served, right? Uh-huh. Put, put me through the conveyor belt as quick and cheap as you can. Uh-huh, um, absolutely. Well, and I know you've had this modeled for you. I, I remember you put me on the phone with, with your stepdad and we were talking about the child rescue stuff with his SF background. Um, but when you think about your military career, um, is there anybody that, that really stands out to you as, man, this is somebody who really took me under their wing and, and showed me what a real leader is like? So I had uh, two leaders, my my first two leaders I had in Ranger Battalion, team leader and a squad leader. And, uh, they were both the two. Can, can we talk about them one at a time? Yeah. Pol so polar opposite. So my team leader, I still talk to both of these guys, but my team leader was, uh, that total, you know, gung ho young Ranger team leader who he was a couple years younger than me when I got to Ranger Battalion. And now he's my, I'm his subordinate. And he, was just always crushing souls. You know, that old school mentality of kind of like the only way to deal with somebody is you just crush your souls and break them off and then, uh, <laughs> re rebuild them. And in the meantime, you just keep crushing the souls and, uh, eventually they'll fix themselves. So it, it can work sometimes for younger guys. Um, sometimes people need it. I mean, I, I definitely, don't think that that should, that model should be done away with by no means. That is an extremely useful model. But for me that, 
you know, coming, I went into the military at 24. So it was something that, um, I don't think I necessarily needed, but it was, it was always good to know that, okay, I could get crushed at any time. So I, I need to be minding my P's and Q's. Now my squad leader, um, he Wait, was, and just for, for everybody who doesn't have the context, can you talk yeah. about what the benefit is of, of really gaining that level of discipline? Cause it, it, it can sound to somebody who doesn't understand the benefits. It sounds like, Oh, that just sounds abusive. And, and, uh, I, I can't see any positive to that, but can you, can you elaborate on why, uh, having high levels of discipline creates unit cohesion and, and that guys feel like they're really a part of something? Sure. So by simply, um, being kind of stripped of everything that you think, you know, that identity that, uh, I'm special, I have the right or the privilege to do things that I want to do. Once that's removed, then you kind of realize, okay, I'm no different than, uh, the guy next to me. And, um, we just need to come together and kind of work through this as a team. And so, you know, when you're a leader within the military, that's your goal to kind of, to kind of make the junior guys, realize like, look, you're nothing without the team or the rest of the guys. So we need to kind of break you down in order to, we need to get that done when there's no bullets flying at us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, by simply, there's times you might mess up or something. I don't know, like maybe you, uh, left a piece of your kit or your gear somewhere and that specific team leader was going to find out, or he did find out. And it's like, okay, instead of just simply telling you, Hey, go get your magazine that you left, you know, out of your seven magazines for your weapon system. You left one of them, I don't know, over there. You dropped it and you couldn't find it when we were doing live fire training or something. Because you couldn't find it, uh, a smoke session is going to ensue. And a smoke session is like you're doing push-ups, you're running, you're doing sprints, you're doing burpees, pull-ups, all this stuff. And, of course, it's miserable because it's like physical pain and you're just getting crushed for like an hour or two hours depending on the severity of however bad you messed up. So that, that sticks with you a lot more in your mind on, I better not mess up again because I know what's waiting for me compared to, Hey, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Um, then that said individual, that specific soldier might think like, Oh, it's not a big deal that I left a magazine because then that magazine turns into like, well, maybe I left my weapon system sitting somewhere because I just got up you know, I was at a table eating and I put my gun down. I just got up and I left. And it's like, dude, you need your weapon always needs to be next to you. So by simply getting crushed for that, it sticks with the individual soldier a lot more than somebody being nice to them. Well, um, and think about, I mean, I'm, you know, obviously I'm thinking about uh, Raul who introduced us and, you know, not everybody realizes how hardcore the missions Rangers go on, you know, where you guys are out there. Uh, blocking and participating with some of the most classified units the U.S. government's ever trained, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, can you talk about the benefit of being able to know that every guy with you has had this level of attention burned into his soul of like, no, this guy, this guy's going to be able to cover my back because there's no way he's left his magazine because he's been through what I've been through and none of us are going to forget our magazines having been through that. Yeah, so I, I think that would be... I believe looking at some of the units that we worked with and then some other units that were um, very similar to to us in operational settings, um, you either have these missions that, like you're saying, that you can't really mention, 
that are extremely senior guys, and it only makes sense that they can operate at that level because you're, you're talking about a unit where probably the majority or the average age of everybody is 34, and they've been doing military stuff for 15 years already. So, of course, they should be able to, to proficiently act on the battlefield or carry out their missions. Now, when you talk about a young Ranger platoon, um, you're going to have guys that are extremely competent, you know, and have been doing it for a decade and they might be a platoon sergeant. And then you're still going to have the brand new private who's like a 17 or 18 year old kid. And so in order to put them all on a level to where they can efficiently work as a team, um, it really comes down to, you just have to smash some souls and make sure those junior guys are have the fear of God in them and understand like if I mess up in anything like my, my career my friends oh, my, yeah yeah my everything. friends might like, die yeah that sense of like guilt and shame and once again that doesn't necessarily work in a business in in like a civilian world but well, in the military it's not a life and death scenario death in the civilian the, world right? yeah life and death is on the line it's probably okay to to have a healthy understanding of like by me not doing my job um it's going to cost my friend his life and you know, understanding that by me not doing my job, um, I'm not only, it might not cost him his life, but I'm going to get messed up royally for like two, three, four hours, which is just, you know, that, that will make people realize very quickly, like, okay, I don't want to mess up because now I'm going to literally have to go run 10 miles. And then when I'm done, I'm going to have to go do push-ups and sit-ups and yeah, you know, burpees and go, I don't know, go all, all sorts of nonsense, like, well, the military games that you played. So. It, you know, it sounds so harsh for people that haven't been through it. Um, but, but it's also people hearing about it who haven't had to be, you know, haven't had to go to that high stakes of a situation relying on, on the people. Right. Uh, so, right. okay. Let's talk about uh, the other leader that you feel like had a big impact on you. Um, so the other one was more of my type of personality and he was my squad leader. And it was, he was a lot more, um, not really hands off, but he was just a very mellow guy. He'd also come in later in life at 24. So when he was a squad leader, when he was my squad leader, he was, I think, 29 or 30 and I'm 24 at the time. So the way everything was dealt with when he dealt with me was specifically, he, he knew he could sit down and just talk to me. So it's like, Hey, you know where you messed up, right? Yeah, I do. Okay. Don't do that again. I got it. And then it's never done again, you know? So the two styles were totally different, but I appreciated both of them because if I would have just had the laid back style, um, you know, I might not have fully grasped the severity of the issues all the time. And then by having the guy that was just always willing to uh, resort to crushing souls first and talking later, then you kind of realize the severity of the issues because it's like, yeah, at the end of the day, we're going overseas to do these, these important missions and, we're going out and, uh, you know, there's a very likely possibility that any given day, some of us aren't coming back or one of us aren't coming back or, or whatever the case might be. So you have to be proficient and you have to understand the severity of, of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, listen, another question we always like to ask people is, um, with our charity child rescue, trying to prevent child trafficking. We always like to get advice in your case. You've, you've been an active part. You've, you've helped us, uh, whether it's, selling selling our products at the store um, or just generally giving us advice as we've thought about whether it's supporting somebody else's undercover rescue mission or, or made decisions about what kind of police trainings or things we might start to do. 
what what was it about this cause that you decided it was worth volunteering some of your time for? Uh, I believe a lot of it is just simply, um, you know, out of a lot of the different crimes that are out there and are committed against humanity in this world, um, that is one that I, I believe most people are completely oblivious to the reality that that is still going on and it's still as prevalent as it is in third world countries and surprisingly here in America. So people just have no inkling that that is sex trafficking, slavery, human trafficking, human slavery. I mean, just the recollection, the reality is not there. We live in this cookie cutter world where everything, everybody seems like, uh, you know, at worst, somebody might get murdered or die, but this, this idea of, man, there, there are still young women or young boys or girls that are getting trafficked into sex trafficking throughout America or throughout the world. Um, how do we stop that? And, uh, that's, that, uh, obviously is very important and needs to be, you know, needs some light shed on. So if I can help out in any way, then I'm, I'm definitely would love to do that. Well, we appreciated everything you've done for us so far and, uh, and plan to keep calling you. <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of as we wind down here, um, obviously, you know, nine different deployments, you know, going to Afghanistan, going to Iraq, um, you know, I think you told me you spent like five years on the sniper side of things. Um, it's it's such a valuable thing for guys to be able to know they've got overwatch from somebody like you, you know, feeling like they've got somebody they rely, can rely on to help keep them alive. Um, nowadays, uh, you know, whether you're doing stuff with the guard or just more on the civilian side, when you think about something like this, this competition you've got coming up, can you explain to people like um, kind of everybody wants to win and, and like, this is a big deal. I mean, you've got people coming from, all across U.S. military and U.S. law enforcement, but also international um, militaries are sending their top snipers to this thing. Can you talk about um, trying to become extremely proficient at this at this skill, how you do it or what your mindset is or, or just principles that you think would apply no matter what somebody's trying to get good at? Yeah, so a lot of it just comes down to obviously a lot of time behind the gun. I, I try to do a lot of shooting on my off time and compete in civilian competitions. And then I do do uh, some instructing on the side um, with different agencies, government agencies and law enforcement agencies. And so when I got out two years ago, I've, I've kind of uh, aligned myself with a buddy's company and we've, we've done quite a bit of instructing over the last two years in all different facets. Um, so that helps out tremendously because not only, Am I uh, familiar with actually getting behind the gun? But now you have to sit down and instruct um, individuals. And it's a little different mindset when you're in the military and you're getting paid to do it. And now a company is actually paying you to instruct them. And so you're having to get past that barrier of like, man, they're paying me a lot of money to actually know what I'm doing. And I can't just write it off as like, oh, I'm in the military and yeah, I know what I'm doing. So it's forcing it's forced me to, to really think about how, how proficient am I, am I with what I know and how well can I, um, repeat it and teach it to these individuals who do need this stuff on, uh, and, and what they're learning does, does rely on the, you know, life and death situations for them. So, uh, that helps out tremendously because now I'm able to kind of 
it helps them out. But for me, it helps me out because I'm able to realize and run through my head on what I thought I knew and kind of double check and realize, yeah, no, that does make sense. Or sometimes, you know, you, you teach something, you realize like, I don't really know if that made sense, but I've been taught that my whole military career. So, you know, you kind of have to fix stuff as, as you go and kind of rework SOPs or, or find out where the answer, that question might've came from and figure out the answers. So, um, that's extremely, extremely helpful for me as, um, I guess just a competitive shooter. Yeah. And, uh, I know it will help going into this competition. Um, so. And, and what about mindset wise? Like I'm thinking about, you know, Winston, right? You, you had to go compete against 26 other teams knowing that you've got to make it into this top three to be able to go to international. Right. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you tell yourself headspace? I mean, all of us who, who have businesses or, or we have a leadership position in somebody else's company, we've all got competition. Uh, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to get that customer. Um, as you're going into this competition, knowing there's 26 other teams that want that spot. Um, what, uh, what is your self-talk or what do you do attitude wise to, to go in there and, and perform at your top. So that competition was pretty good because our guns here in the state were broken and we had to call the schoolhouse and actually borrow guns <laughs> from the schoolhouse, which means all you have is a bunch of students going through and it's not like those guns are the best guns anyways. And when we get there, they just give us two rifles and 40 rounds of ammunition. They're like, okay, figure out your gun. And uh, it was like, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. So by day two, two and a half, we realized that my, my partner's gun is pretty much shot out and it's not accurate whatsoever. And so we end up using my gun the entire competition. And it was really like like we've talked about in this interview, but I'm pretty laid back. So it's kind of like, hey, you know what? It's Whatever happens, happens. If you kind of fail an event or you don't do so good or you do real good, regardless of, of how well you do or how bad you do, the long-term goal is like we need to be consistent at at what we're doing here. And if you can just maintain a level of consistency across the board, that doesn't mean that you're always trying to do a hundred percent and come in first place at every event. Cause that's not going to happen. But if you can consistently come in like, you know, seventh to third, that will pretty much land you a first place spot or a second place spot. Um, or land you in that top bracket because you're, you're just a consistent shooter. So the goal is you don't want to obviously bolo anything and and get zeros on a bunch of different stages, but if you can consistently shoot good, then you're gonna you're gonna do good. So, um, do you feel so like that, it lowers the anxiety at any given point where you just say, "I'm here to be consistent" rather than getting worked up about any one thing? Yeah, tr- tremendously. So by my my partner and I that I was shooting with for that competition and then the international, we're both pretty laid back guys and and. Uh, you can get around guys that are pretty hyped up and you see that they're just inducing all this stress on themselves and they generally don't tend to do pretty poorly. Um, so it, it, you know, it helps to be, it helps to choose to make yourself a little bit more laid back and, and emotionally stable in, in something like this. Cause, um, you know, you're able to step back and your emotions aren't driving how you perceive everything and, and you can actually, slow down and think about, you know, what you're doing at that certain stage instead of just, uh, worried about, worried about, I got to do number one. I have to be number one. I have to be in first place. It's like, okay, well, what's the goal here? What's the object? Okay. How can I best tackle this? And if you end up in first, you're like, oh, that's 
okay, I guess we shot pretty good at that stage, you know, and whatever. So, yeah. Well, listen, uh, we appreciate how much time you spent with us. Any closing advice for entrepreneurs or innovators out there? Um, man, I, whatever you're thinking, I'm always a huge fan of just go big or go home. So every one of my barber shops they're they are the best barber shops in Northern Arizona, the way I designed them, the way they're set up. So whatever you're doing, you should be the best at what you're doing. And if that means you have to spend a little bit of extra money and you have to take a little bit extra time, it's, that's what you have to do. But you know, like I told my employees at our shop meeting, if we're not the best, then I'm going to close the shop because I'm going to go and do, do something else that makes me the best at it, you know? And, and that was more on them, you know, letting them know, like, look, I, you guys need to be the best to make this place the best. You guys need to believe you're the best as well. I, I can only build this place up so much and create all these SOPs and everything else that needs to make this place the best. But at the end of the day, each one of them is a valued member of the team. And so they need to start believing in themselves as being the best in, in Northern Arizona. And so, uh, putting that responsibility on them and like including them in on the, on the team environment. Love it. Okay. Thanks again. And uh, talk to you soon. Okay, Jess. Talk to you later, buddy. Okay, bye. Well, that's it for the show. I hope you liked it. Again, please check out the conference Reed and his team have helped build called productpowerup.com. It's happening uh, this coming Thursday with founder of Stance Socks, Code Epoxy CEO, David Smith, one of the Harmon brothers. And uh, as before, if you're interested in getting on the list to get an advanced copy of our new book coming out, uh, just email me, jess at innovationandleadership.com. Again, J-E-S-S at innovationandleadership.com. And just let me know. Thanks so much for listening. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.